1: Welcome to this bonus TLS long read, produced by NOAA, News Over Audio. If you'd like to listen to more audio articles from the TLS, you can do so on the TLS website or the News Over Audio app. Narrated by NOAA.
0: Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the NOAA app or at newsoveraudio.com.
1: You are listening to the TLS. This is the Gene Genie. Recent Scientific Breakthroughs Allow Experimentation with the DNA of All Living Species by Nessa Carey from the issue of December 2, 2022. Nessa Carey is a former entrepreneur-in-residence at the University of Oxford and the author of Hacking the Code of Life, published in 2019. In 2020, two women, Emmanuelle Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna, won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry increasing at a stroke the total number of female recipients in this category by 40%. The award was For the Development of a Method of Gene Editing, which might sound dry, but in reality covers an extraordinary invention. Before it, a great deal of gene-based science focused on a small number of model species—mice, fruit flies, zebrafish, and microscopic worms—that were amenable to existing genetic manipulation tools— and whose genomes could be altered within the span of a research grant. The technology invented by Chapontier and Doudna swept away all technical and cost barriers to changing genes in any species. Known by the acronym CRISPR, short for Clustered, Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats, this cheap, efficient, and rapid method is a clever reimagining of a system found in nature. The fundamental biology evolved in bacteria— as a way of fighting off attacks by viruses, and has the rare distinction of being one of the few research areas in science that has received funding from both the U.S. military and a yogurt manufacturer. The Nobel laureate's breakthrough was to simplify, adapt, and synthesize the key features of this bacterial defense system and create a version that worked independently of its parent microbes on any DNA sequence from any species. Both women recognized that the practical applications of gene editing were many. And Doudna, in particular, has been at the forefront of highlighting the ethical, commercial, safety, and societal concerns that accompany this newfound ability to manipulate the double helix, although we've been grappling with such anxieties since the 1970s, which is where Matthew Cobb's book, The Genetic Age, or Perilous Quest to Edit Life, begins. Genetic engineering, also known as genetic modification, or GM, has been with us for just over 50 years. And for most of that time, the technology has remained essentially unchanged, albeit subject to ongoing improvement. A weakness of Cobb's book is that he is in love with early-period direct manipulation, and the risk is that the reader won't realize that gene editing is not simply GM 2.0. The technologies are different. It's hard to carry out GM changes without leaving messy abnormal DNA sequences in the modified organism or its descendants. Gene editing, by contrast, is rapidly approaching a level of sophistication whereby one perfect change can be introduced and nothing else. No footprint, no sign that anything human-directed has happened. This is already creating some intriguing paradoxes. Campaigners against GM crops bolstered their position by highlighting the artificial additional DNA sequences left behind after changes were introduced. The same campaigners are now crying foul because gene editing can be used to create crops where a single change has been introduced, and it is impossible to distinguish between natural and edited plants. Their proposed solution is that such crops should have extraneous DNA added, to show that the original stock has been edited. It's so hard to please everyone. The superiority of gene editing over previous approaches may mean that in 50 years' time, GM will be looked on as a historical cul-de-sac, but even dead ends can teach us important lessons. Cobb provides an exhaustive history of the early developments. His research and coverage are deep and impressive, but the emphasis is skewed. The descriptions of the early experiments that led to the imperfect but usable GM technology are sometimes too technical and don't give the reader a clear understanding of exactly which barrier has been overcome and why it mattered. The lack of an index doesn't help. From its inception in the late 1960s, genetic engineering acted as a lightning rod for countercultural protest. While some of the early objections and fears were ill-informed or simply incorrect, They served an important purpose, pushing researchers to confront the positive and negative possibilities of the new capabilities. The most famous outcome was the Asilomar meeting of 1975, at which leading researchers in the nascent field attempted to create a consensus on responsible experimentation, and it is comprehensively covered in the genetic age. You can sense Cobb's excitement and enthusiasm, and he is careful to give credit to the women pioneers, who have so often been marginalized. But there is sometimes a forced animation to his descriptions of the conflicts among the big guns. The author is most excited about times and events to which he feels connected personally through being a working scientist. However, peripherally, and this tendency to try to place himself in the story is one that would have benefited from a stronger editorial hand. Changes in crop production have given rise to the lion's share of public anxiety about the use of genetic engineering. The polarization between factions has been extreme, although it's not a homogenous picture globally. Few GM-derived crops are grown or consumed in the United Kingdom or the European Union, whereas the acreage given over to GM cotton in the United States, for example, is immense. Cobb is even-handed in his treatment of the agricultural issue debunking the myths about GM crops leading to an epidemic of suicides in Indian farmers – they didn't – and highlighting the 750 million kilos of pesticide that are now not used because certain GM crops no longer need them. He is also articulate about the importance of different scales of agriculture, pointing out that what works on intensive farms in the global north may be counterproductive or irrelevant for small-scale farmers in the global south. When used appropriately, GM plants have the potential to lessen the highly damaging effects of intensive agriculture. They won't be the only solution, but they won't lead to Armageddon either. All plants generated via GM or gene editing are safe. We never eat the plants that have been experimented on, only their descendants. Bizarrely, in the EU, it is currently fine to create new crop varieties by introducing random mutations via chemical mutagens or irradiation and to grow and sell the descendants, but not to introduce one perfectly targeted change via gene editing. Environmental groups tend to be quiet about their support for nuclear technology in this instance. Encouragingly, the EU may be softening its stance on crops created through gene editing. This will bring it more in line with the pragmatic stance of the U.S. regulators, who stipulate that if gene editing creates a change that's already found in nature and doesn't create a toxin, then there isn't a problem. If there's no scientific reason to be concerned about GM-slash-gene-edited crops, why has the furor persisted? For this, we can thank Monsanto, the tin eared agritech company that rushed GM crops onto the market without building understanding in the general public, while vacuuming up every bit of intellectual property that might be relevant to the technology. The fears that a single corporation would develop a stranglehold on global food supplies were exaggerated, but not unfounded. Monsanto's high-handed, paternalistic introduction of the technology probably set back public acceptance by 20 years. Tellingly, all the players involved in the technology that underpins gene-edited crops have put safeguards in place to ensure that such monopolization can never happen again. The food space is just one instance where the biggest problem in acceptance of GM or gene editing lies not in the safety of the science, but in social questions, such as the entrenchment of inequality via unequal access to the potential benefits. These are important issues, although in truth there is no science good or bad, but capitalism makes it so. And nowhere is this more apparent than in the application of technology to healthcare, where the price tags for new therapies may place them out of reach of the people who would benefit most. Notwithstanding this, the speed and potential of developments in this field are unprecedented. Just 10 years after Doudna and Chapantier's seminal paper, patients with sickle cell disease are in clinical trials for a gene-edited therapy that is so far proving highly effective. Although larger trials are needed before the approach can be licensed for general use, the speed with which gene editing has reached this stage, especially in a condition where there have been no new effective pharmacological approaches for decades, is highly encouraging. Cobb is strangely lukewarm about this breakthrough and doesn't describe the elegant scientific strategy in which gene editing has been used to switch a fetal gene back on, compensating for the effect of the pathological mutation. By using this approach rather than trying to correct the patient-specific mutations, gene editing is suitable for as many sickle cell patients as possible. He spends a lot more time in the zone of old-school GM as applied to gene therapy, a field that for at least 30 years has always been just five years away from fulfilling its potential. The most controversial potential therapeutic application of gene editing is in altering the germline of human embryos. The new treatment for sickle cell disease is essentially a sophisticated drug for the recipient alone. Germline gene editing, by contrast, results in any DNA change being passed on to future descendants. Cobb gives a good overview of the tragically premature use of this technique by He Jiankui, who in 2018 used CRISPR to edit human embryos, leading to the births of germline gene-edited children in the absence of any strikingly unmet medical need. But this chapter also exposes one of the two main weaknesses in the book, which is that the author never really asks why we are so nervous about and possessive of DNA, especially our own. Unless we interrogate this emotion, we will struggle to know when and how this technology should be used. It's a vital issue because, as Doudna has pointed out, the relative ease of gene editing and its potential usefulness in the treatment of human genetic disorders may change the ethical landscape for scientists and clinicians. Where previously the key ethical question about new therapies was, do we have the right to do this? Now it is changing to, do we have the right to withhold it? The other key weakness of the genetic age derives from its subtitle, our perilous quest to edit life. The cover depicts a serpent emerging from the double helix. Few disciplines have made as much effort as genetic engineering to understand the technology being developed and to consider early on how to address the dilemmas that arise from it. And Cobb's perilous thesis only really applies in two cases or areas of research, pathogens and gene drives. The rest of the time, it throws up inconsistencies. He criticizes the Asilomar meeting for concentrating on safety instead of ethics, but lambasts the exemplary 2018 report on germline human editing from the Nuffield Council on Bioethics for addressing only ethics and not safety. In both cases, he ignores vital underpinnings. When GM emerged, no one could hope to identify all its possible applications, but it was clear that laboratories throughout the world would begin to use it, and quickly. There was an urgent need to create safety guidelines that would protect scientists, their colleagues, and the general public. The safety frameworks developed as a consequence of Asilomar have served us well for nearly half a century. The Nuffield Council on Bioethics thought that if germline gene editing became reliable enough to use in humans, it isn't at the moment, then it would be important to think through all the ethical implications of its use as far ahead of implementation as possible. In trying to live up to the expectations created by his subtitle, the author ducks the issue that nothing—vaccines, bicycles, dishwashers—is completely safe. The question is whether or not the benefits outweigh the risks, and how we decide. Which, in turn, loops back into the question of why we are so proprietorial about DNA. Is changing the DNA sequence in one family suffering from a devastating genetic disease so that it's the same as the sequence in the other 8 billion people on the planet really that big a risk? Why does the genetic industry capture the public imagination so disproportionately? I wish Matthew Cobb and his publishers had chosen a different subtitle and resisted the need to sex up their dossiers so unconvincingly. There is too much, look at what could have happened, think how perilous this might have been, to which one can only reply, wearily, after one too many wolf-crying episodes, but it wasn't. You have been listening to the TLS. This was The Gene Genie. Recent scientific breakthroughs allow experimentation with the DNA of all living things. By Nessa Carey, from the issue of December second, 2022. It was read by Adrian Walker. For NOAA. The article you just listened to
0: was narrated by the team at NOAA. Continue listening to more great journalism on the
1: NOAA app or by visiting newsoveraudio.com.